It's the same old story. It's been a long day at the job, or maybe it's just starting to feel long, and you feel that urge to stretch your legs and get a little bit of a break. You walk down the street, or maybe you get behind the wheel of your car, and you feel the weight begin to lift. You walk through the doors, and the sound of the place starts to clear the air. You get a table, you order your drink, you listen to the sounds of the bar, and soak in the conversation. Welcome to the TNE Speakeasy with your hosts, Caleb and Isaac. Listen in as they discuss the 1997 film Perfect Blue. finally arriving on our final episode of Strange Animation Volume 1, and to toss it to you, Isaac, um, I've seen this one previously, but I know that you were coming into this one for a first time. Uh, did you know much about this movie coming in? Uh, once again, saw Bennett the Sages' review of this years ago, but thankfully forgot about some of it, um, and I think he reviewed the English version, whereas I only watched the Japanese dub, or excuse me, the original audio. And I was very impressed by it. Mm. Yeah, my first viewing, I mean, this was uh, the first Satoshi Kon film that I saw. And immediately I was like, I really need to see what else this guy's done. I mean, this this is a really standout uh, film. Visually speaking, in the style and the, the kind of cut-up order that he shot some of the stuff, like the intro, when we see that, that last concert intercut with like her uh, arriving at her house. I love the way that's cut together. It's got kind of a disjointed kind of vibe to it which immediately kind of sets you off balance a little bit and the whole movie just keeps knocking you further off balance over and over again so super cool structure to it but yeah where do you start with a film like this because this one again i mean these these have all been pretty strange um i feel like the last one we watched was a little bit more structured in a way that was straightforward this one definitely starts to get confusing and and lost pretty quickly but well I don't know. I found this one not to be... It's broken intentionally, yes, but... I don't know, like a Tarantino film, but, like... It was easy... Well, not, I can't say easy to follow. I did pay attention. Like You, you do have to pay attention to this film, just like you yeah. did the last. But this is still, like, straightforward. Like, okay, maybe not as, like, Fantastic Planet was. That's the funny thing about, like, all these have just either been straightforward or not. Like, there's not really much that was cut in between Angel's Egg. Not to all of a sudden compare everything to each other and i guess we we've, we've arrived at the end so we might as well but like yeah no it's it's all, this one there's a there's a beginning middle and end there's mm -hmm. stuff cut up but there's that's kind of intentional given the nature of this film about re identity and like subjective reality yeah subjective reality absolutely that's the uh, prevailing force of this one yeah, what are we seeing that's real, and what are we seeing that's just in someone's mind is all over the place in this. Oh, and uh, just to uh, quickly read the plot summary for this episode. Our story follows a 90s pop star who's just beginning a difficult transition from leaving her pop trio for the life of a working actress. Mima struggles with her new career, but puts on a happy face 
as the people around her push her into compromising positions in an attempt to boost her fledgling career, at first urging her to take part in a rape scene, and then to an extremely revealing photo shoot. Internally during this, Mima's compromised mind begins to split when she starts seeing a disembodied version of herself in her former pop star's image. And that's really where the events in the film start to fall into the realm of subjectivity, as two other characters can potentially see this pop star version of Mima. The first being a slightly deformed guard, who we see encountering Mima early in the film during her final performance with her trio, and who she'll continually see throughout the film, even when it's clearly shown that he couldn't have been there when she sees him. And he's also potentially the mastermind behind a creepy webpage called Mima's Room, where the writer seems to know everything that happens in Mima's life, and as the movie goes on, also begins to paint said writer as the real Mima, horrified at what our Mima is doing with her career. The second person visited by the ghostly Mima is her female agent, Rumi, who also seems to become possessed by the pop star ghost, and in the climax of the film, tries to kill Mima so she can take control of her life back. In the meantime, as these plots develop, we also get several grisly murders taking place, and strangely, they seem to mirror the murders that occur on the crime television show that Mima is currently working on. And even more strangely, her character in the show seems to be dealing with the same sort of mental split, is this a coincidence, or is there more to it? Find out all that and more in this final edition of Strange Animation Volume 1, as we dive deep into Perfect Blue. Oh, and it's based off a novel, of course. I forgot about that. Yeah, another one. Yeah, what's this, the third one? <laughs> uh, yeah, the third one, so that's odd. <laughs> Angel's Egg yeah. was the only one that wasn't based off, unless you want to count, like, parts of the Bible. <laughs> well, to be fair, if we looked at, like, the percentage of films put out each year and which ones are based on uh, prior material. I'm sure it'd be pretty high, so. Yeah. Well, also, Whisper of the Heart, this is not. <laughs> oh, oh, are you thinking of Whisper of the Heart when you're watching this? Boy, oh boy, yeah, very different. Uh. <laughs> I'm, I'm just thinking mostly of, um, by the way, everybody, uh, full disclosure, I am watching this, like, alongside of, uh, not commentating on it, but talking about it, discussing it, because I'm watching the standard definition version of it. Uh, in mute, of course, because you can't hear in the background. But yeah, I, I, first I obviously watched the HD version, but I gotta say I love like Shout Factory or sorry Screen Factory um, when the just any like you know distributor does this for films. I love when they include like both the original version and then like the standard definition, and the high definition. Why is that? Because you can at least see what it looked like um, with like a different filter. Uh, and maybe kind of transport yourself back to that time period, even though I can't transport myself back to 1998 since I was only four years old at that point and I don't remember much. Yeah, and I will comment, I thought that was an unusual special feature. One, just in the way they title it, because calling it standard definition. I mean, this disc also comes with the DVD, which is in standard def. That was weird. That was very weird. What they should have called it is the uh, unrestored version, because it is definitely very, very rough extremely rough yeah it's so weird to like i didn't yeah i didn't pop in my dvd i didn't know if it like changed or not but like that's a good point uh, now that you realize i wasn't thinking about that like why isn't the unrestored version on the dvd instead well I've, the dvd would come with the this new master but um it would yeah in case someone doesn't have a blu-ray player but still wants to buy this which shockingly i'm sure there's many people still out there in the world who don't don't have blu-ray players that's very strange to me to think in this <laughs> It is what it is. Yeah. Uh, whether it's like economic funds or personal tastes. Yeah, not feeling the need to upgrade. Yeah. But 
but yeah, I thought that was an unusual special feature, but kind of a cool one too. It was interesting to uh, see how much they'd done to it. And I'd wondered if um, they had to like stretch it because it was like in a kind of, uh, I don't know what kind of ratio that was, but it was definitely more, um, was it four by three, I think is what that was. It looked like a VHS rip or something. Yeah, I'm looking like right now, wait, okay, maybe slightly enhanced. I don't know. Slightly enhanced, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the aspect ratio does look like it's four by three. Now, full disclosure again, I'm not, I don't know all my, you know, technical terms when it comes to this. I think you're the more, you're the one that wants to study film for pit's sake, so you know this more than I do. Um, I'm going to ask you this. Is there a split diopter shot in this? I feel like I, there was. Not that I could see, no. Okay. It's different, of course, with animation. Because, uh, yeah, they could just enhance. Well, yeah, yeah, fair enough. Because, yeah, you can't really do that. Yeah. <laughs> but, of course, in uh, something like stop motion, perhaps you could do that. And maybe that'll be a, a future... Uh, yes! Future strange animation volume. I but... don't know about 3D animation, though. I wonder if you could with 3D, potentially. Yeah, again, you could, but it wouldn't be actually in camera in the same way yeah yeah no no yeah no i see your point yeah but but i did think um i love how this film because since we're mentioning kind of the the old kind of uh version of it the unrestored version you mentioning the date 1998 i love how kind of said in this time it is like our our lead character was a pop idol and i guess this kind of pop idol still exists in places like um i know like k-pop has these kind of uh, like trio groups or duo groups like that but at least here in the west i feel like we don't really see this kind of thing as much as we used to back then so it's kind of cute uh seeing them in their little dance number i was like oh that feels like a piece of uh dated history and then all the stuff with the computer later on i thought was so cute <laughs> and fun it quaint as one would say uh i guess the closest thing to like aisle groups like fifth harmony i think was you could consider that potentially. I didn't listen to them. I just I I know of them. Oh, interesting. There was also, I you could say maybe One Direction again. Yep. What 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 do we mean by like an idol group, Papa? It's kind of, I guess not the first one, but like the idea of taking like, you know, who was it? Either the Beatles or the Monkees are, are this in terms of like music history. Now I'm not well. I, I'm not so like you know influ I'm not so knowledgeable in my like music history there, but like taking like a group, a number of people, and bringing them together to make this group uh, for for certain purposes. Yeah, I tend to. I mean, that was a. I feel like that's a bit of a different period for this kind of stuff. But yeah, similar. Maybe there's the people who made this kind of model. But I mean, people like this, the the Spice Girls, you know, One Direct or not One Direction, um, In Sync. And um, what was the Destiny's Child? Like there was all these groups that all had um, they're all working in a similar kind of like positive pop music kind of stuff. I see. Yeah, and that's kind of what this duo is too. Uh, Cham, I think it is. And I was wondering if that was I was wondering if that word like if, if maybe it had some meaning that I didn't know. I was trying to look it up, but. <laughs> Glam, sham. Uh, That's what I was kind of wondering. Yeah, if it was like a glam kind of thing. Wha oh, wham. No, maybe not. <laughs> yeah. But our lead, Mima, she's trying to transition from being a pop icon to being a serious actress. And in doing so, she kind of enters, yeah, kind of a corrupt world of people just wanting to advance her and using her kind of... Uh, it's, it's difficult to say whether they're just just any actress who comes to this kind of field. 
they would kind of use what she has, which is her looks and her body, to kind of advance her career. Or whether they were kind of feeding on the fact that, oh, that's this innocent pop idol. We'll get more of a thrill to see her kind of dressed down in this way. I couldn't quite tell if that was behind some of her, the people running her career. Yeah, that's uh, that's an ugly thing to it. Yeah, warning, this is going to contain a lot of graphic talk, or at least this <laughs> film, if you've seen it, it has a lot of like graphic imagery in it. Um, but a very interesting one at that. It's from a different angle. Mm -hmm. uh, very, very different from Female Prisoner Scorpion. The, the first one, I mean. We'll, we'll get to it eventually. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about it later, but for now, yes, it's... I, I like... It's a good story. Uh, is it, like, unintentional period piece? Yeah, but... <laughs> well... <laughs> I don't mind. I don't, I don't think that's a problem. It depends if it's, like if the story is well done and I'm very glad I'm, I, I watched this and I'm glad it takes me back to a point of history where, you know, when I was only four years old where I actually existed, but you know, couldn't, wasn't conscious enough mm -hmm. or where my surroundings are understood with my memory. Oh man. The, the creepy uh, guy just popped up on the screen. Oh yes. Uh, whatever his name is, the recurring bud or the recurring otaku or whatever. <laughs> Uh, uh, stalker fanboy. There we go. Stalker. Yes, Bima has this creepy stalker who runs like her website, or at least could run her website. By the end of the film, I mean, I'm pretty sure that he existed, but things get so muddled that I started to wonder, maybe he doesn't exist. I don't know. <laughs> that's that's the thing of this film is that, uh, much like Angel's Egg, uh, you have to draw your own conclusions, and maybe maybe a bit of. Uh, Scanner Darkly. I don't know how much hmm. um, Mr. What's his name? Oh, Philip K. Dick. Not Philip K. Dick, the other guy, uh, the director. Oh, yeah, Linklater. Richard Linklater, thank you. Um, I don't know how much subjectivity he put into that film or not. Yeah. But this one was quite intentionally, as Satoshi Kone said, and I was, so I watched the, there was a special feature on this. There was a special feature on the, in the, in the, at least our releases that we were watching. I don't know if it exists or not, uh, of, uh, Satoshi Kone giving a lecture, uh, giving a, a, a lecture, like a 41 minute lecture, uh, about the film to a bunch of like either film students or an, uh, like a, in a classroom of some sort. Mm -hmm. Pretty cool. I'll say that it was very enjoyable. And I, I liked that. I would recommend everybody go watch that. Oh, cool. Um, cause again, I, I, I didn't do any other like prior, uh, research for this again. I usually like to see like where his influences come from, and I I certainly did not um, look that up. <laughs> but I, I I would say yeah, everybody look this. Try not to look up the meaning of the film. Look up like where his resources was and where his like references might be. Not to other films, I mean, but just like what his idea. Because again, this is very much a like it's a. Either he had the idea of like identity, and he said, "I'm going to use pop idols, a pop idol singer transitioning to an actor, uh, as a way of communicating this to the audience," or he read a bunch of tabloids or something like that and was like, "Oh, I'm going to like kind of base a story around this." Kind of like, what is it, Neil Gaiman? Heard about like heard for, when he first heard the name Coraline, he was like how would that person like how what would the story be around that character and then we got Coraline. oh oh that's interesting as as far as i'm aware i think i'm telling that story right but that's that's kind of what i mean of hey you know is is, is this like which came first the story or uh 
the ideas surrounding the story. Oh, but speaking of influences, I guess I can get to this early. Um, did he mention anything at all about being influenced by the, the Jalo? I don't think he did. I don't know if he did mention the Jalo film, but he did mention somebody who referenced him, if you know about that. Oh, no. Okay, well, you first, about before I bring up my, my point. Oh, yeah, I remember the first time I watched this, it was such a cool revelation to be like, wow, I didn't realize that the Jalo genre could be worked into an anime. But this is absolutely just kind of a ex Japanese extrapolation of a Jalo. It's super duper cool. Interesting. It captures the vibe really well, the kind of paranoia, not being able to trust yourself. They have the weird twist at the end, which Jalo's always feeling to have, and the kind of lurid murder sequences with cool kind of rock music playing. All that stuff just straight out of the, the Jalo genre. Dang it, Caleb, now I want to watch the Spirit again. <laughs> uh, we might actually have to do that before we do our uh, commentary, not commentary, but our discussion with Sean and Eric. Because, man, I want to... You're right. Now that you say that, like... Uh, okay, sorry, again, this is... It's been a been a while uh, since we did Demons, but, Caleb, what's the, what's the Jalo genre? Yeah, and the two that you... Uh, a lot of people say Suspiria is a Jalo. I never really saw it. But Jalos are kind of paranoia-driven kind of uh, crime films. Usually it's someone who isn't a police officer, but has some sort of career that the movie kind of revolves around. And they get wrapped up in kind of a murder mystery. And they're going around trying to solve it. And there's all these weird kind of um, eccentric characters that they interact with. There's lots of really kind of extreme violence. And usually accompanied by super kick-ass action or uh, music, kind of um, Euro rock music. So, and I feel like there's that definitely filters into this too. So, and usually they have a big twist at the end that doesn't make sense and just leaves you completely perplexed. <laughs> so that's uh, that also. Uh, it's like a Deus Ex Machina, but like different Diablo Ex Machina. Yeah, they love their completely baffling twists, and, and uh, in the modern era. Um, they've taken a, a much more kind of psychological bent to them. Like there's some really, really cool modern Jalos that feel just like they're trapped in like a surrealist uh, kind of realm, which I feel like this is as well. So it also kind of fits into the modern movement for Jalos, even though that hadn't really started by 1997, which is interesting. But Yeah, there was uh this kind of, maybe not reminds me, but it's kind of similar to... Yeah, it's similar, but now, now that you're mentioning that, it's like, I'm thinking of, uh, I, I don't know if some of the Japanese horror films that were coming out around this time as well, like uh, The Grudge, and, um, oh, what else was there? You know the films I'm talking about, right? Um, that would fit into Jalo? I can't, I can't really think of any that I've seen at least, but... Maybe not, but I'm, 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 my brain's comparing this, this film Perfect Blue to what, like, The Grudge was doing. Um... So where whereas that was like what a house mom or single mother and there's a supernatural force that like she has to deal with. Uh, see, I, I watched um a couple years ago. I started doing a grudge retrospective, and I went through the first I think four or five of them, and they all kind of blended into my brain now. And I don't remember which ones are the American <laughs> ones or Japanese ones. But... Yes, of course, fair enough. <laughs> and they're all real. They're all strange in their own ways, but. Yeah, I, I ended up abandoning it because I think there was 13 of them. And I five in, I was like, I just can't do this anymore. So, <laughs> but anyway, so, sorry, that derailed your uh, 
your comparison there, but <laughs> no, that's that's fine. I think I really wasn't. I don't, know, I don't know if I have much to it, and I don't have much of a basis for an argument. Yeah, I'm trying to think of any ones that would fall into the Jalo genre, but I can't think of any. But I would love to see them if anyone knows. I, I would definitely, absolutely love to see that. Um, and of course, me and you recently saw kind of a modern Jalo in the theater with uh, Malignant. <laughs> 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 Okay, sort of. So it was definitely a reference piece. Um, it, they didn't get it all fully right, and they played it more comedic. Uh, but hashtag give me a malignant sequel. <laughs> oh boy, I, I yeah, that would be fun. Please, please, James Wan, please. Like, I want to <laughs> see another one. Yeah, it could be fun, or at least make something else in that vein, just completely bonkers. <laughs> or like set in the same universe. How about that? Don't call it malignant, but it's in the same universe as that. Instead of just remaking Scream over and over again. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. I didn't watch Spiral. Do we cancel Spiral now that it has Chris Rock in it? I don't know. <laughs> Not going there. Is Chris Rock canceled? Any, anyway, yeah, maybe we, should, maybe we should go back to the movie. But um, um, just... Uh, He's getting slapped out of Hollywood. <laughs> just because just I paused it during this opening scene at the concert. Yep. There's these kind of asshole kids there who are just kind of disrupting the thing. They're drunk. They're throwing beer cans at the stage. And eventually everyone gets mad at them because it's right during Mima's kind of speech where they're announcing that she's leaving the band. Yep. They're just like, keep dancing, and they're throwing these beer cans. And just a little bit of funny animation. Once the crowd gets mad and starts throwing cans at them and they throw it back, there's just like an endless stream of cans where their arms are just moving and all these cans are flying. I'm like, where is this even coming from at this point? How are they all picking up these cans and throwing them? I just thought that was kind of funny. But... <laughs> But a stupid point, <laughs> but I just, I wanted to comment on it. No, that's fine. <laughs> but actually, if we're talking about that beginning scene, I'd like to talk about that for a bit. Sure. Because I found that the the opening scene was interesting. If you watch it with the for the animation, did it seem a little rough and or a little, uh, as, as you would say, cost saving? Um, Like with the crowd, you mean? Or, or like the, the... Just like the first five minutes of the film. That's interesting. No, I didn't see it. No. Because I was looking at it, I was like, okay, this very much reminds me of um, Phil Fury, uh, the, mo the the motion picture, excuse me, which we'll watch one, at one point. But it really made me feel like the first, like, ten minutes of that is, like, some of the animation, at least with the fight scenes, is rough. And then after that, it's all, like, very crisp and clear. So I'm like, was there a budget problem here? Or maybe not budget problem, but, like, was a lot of, like, did they have not enough money? Or was this, like, one of the last things they shot? Well, shot, air quotes. Um, drew... Or was this like one of the first things? Because there was just some like off animation I saw of some. I know that there's some intentional like off animation, but like as as Josh Cohn said, everything in this film was intentional. But I was like, I don't know. It looks like so beginning looks a little bit like maybe not cheap, but like looks either rushed or not fully like. Because you look at the whole film afterwards, it's like there's almost no off frames anywhere. Yeah. Um, I remember I did look into some of the. Because when I saw that they included that um, unrestored version of the special features, I kind of looked up like, oh, like, why is this here? And I discovered that the initial kind of negative for this, just it didn't come out very well. Like, it wasn't a, a great print. And so maybe the early sections, because a lot of them look kind of blown out. Like, the blacks are super, <laughs> like, not properly black kind of thing. So I wonder if maybe there's just some damage to the early part of the film. But off frames, I'm, I'm not too sure. I mean, some of those teenagers didn't look particularly well uh, drawn, but... Yeah, like, 
I, I can see then like cutting costs for crowds. That, yeah, that's fine. Definitely. Whereas like all like the single people, even in like when they're filming uh, Double Blind, uh, the TV show, it's really um, that's that's fine. Like that's that's very crisp. Yep. So it's it's and even then the fashion part, or like when they do the little fashion runway cutaway, that was also like really good. Uh, albeit a lot of the people were stills and they yeah. had like cameras, but again, Matt, this is Madhouse Animation. They can do a lot of good stuff. I mean, we previously saw them with um, Wicked City. Yeah, we previously watched them with Wicked City, mm. and they did like there was almost like no like off frames on that. So I don't know. Maybe it was just something i there might be an explanation i couldn't even tell you yeah but no i can definitely see that like we're coming into this as a like a blu-ray restored blu-ray it doesn't look that great to start so i'm not sure what that what that is but but overall i really do think that the animation really stands up for for this film and the kind of uh the character designs and the overall quality of it looks very similar to a millennium actress so it was a, there's a fun kind of uh, bleeding in between the two of them in that way it's almost like the same like director was a part of that <laughs> yeah i remember tokyo godfathers look quite different and i haven't seen paprika but the little bits of it that i've seen look quite different as well so it's fun that these two kind of share that dna a very similar aesthetic but uh more on the okay so obviously people who have listened to the shitoshi Kone, um lecture will sorry if this is derivative or counterintuitive but I, I kind of want to, because he hasn't seen it. I kind of want to talk about it a bit, because sure. why not? Because he hasn't, you haven't listened to it. Um, now, once again, kind of like Mamoru Oshii with Angel's Eggs, with Angel's Eggs, <laughs> Angel's Egg. Um, this is one of those films, once again, kind of like Eraserhead, where you're not too sure what the plot, not the plot, but what the meaning or the message or like how the events unfolds, if they're proper or not. Um, if that makes sense. So, like, there's no clear, like, answer. I think this is a little more clear of an answer, potentially, than, say, Eraserhead, even though I've not seen that, but you get my drift, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My point being is that um, Satoshi Kone and whoever was the writer of this wrote this, but he didn't necessarily... Uh, he, he doesn't say, like, everything that's in the script or is on screen is his... Uh, and his like you know he he agrees with it what's it what's it called uh he owns it if that's what it make, makes sense whereas like this is my this is the this is what i say the film is about and so that's what it clearly is whereas he's like obviously open to interpretation yeah david lynch is not like 100 percent on racer head correct yeah there are bits where you can ask him like oh what does this mean and he'll be like i'm not going to tell you you know ask him what other things mean and he'll be like oh i don't know we just decided and it felt right and i just did it and i don't fully know what it means either but <laughs> Yeah, my brief research of Mamoru Oshii on Angels Like he was like, I asked by people, hey, what's the film about? What's the ending all about? He's like, I don't know. <laughs> nice. Nice. <laughs> Just leaves it at that. Like, who, 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 am I, who, who am I to know? Yeah, that's the way to do it. Where they basically, where they, where they make, the, they create this piece of art and you don't know what it's about. It's abstract. That's what the word is. It's abstract. It's subjective. Yes. It's not objective. There are films that are objective and then there are films of subjective, and that's what this film is all about. It's very subjective. Yeah, I wouldn't... I mean, I think this one does get counted as a kind of a surrealist anime, but definitely more in the abstract realm, because a lot of surrealist uh, films, I feel like it's very purposefully surrealist. Like, the imagery is meant to be symbolic, so you 
get like a certain kind of symbolic understanding. This one's yep. much more in the abstract realm where it's just kind of experimental in, in structure and style. And by the end, it leaves you kind of mystified, purposely so. Yeah, there's not so much... Pardon me if I'm repeating you, but there's not so much surreal images, more is that the abstraction comes from how it's told. Am I correct in that? Yeah. Like, by the end of it, I was wondering, is this genuinely a film with a supernatural element? Or was it just just people who are crazy? I, it, I don't know. I, I really don't know at all. Or have mental health issues, excuse me. <laughs> or your mental health issues, yes. <laughs> Fair enough. Not not trying to say crazy is not a thing, but like, <laughs> there's people who have mental health issues and then there's crazy. Those are two different people, I'd say. Yeah, and it'd be three different people with a, with different mental illness issues in this one, because... There's that, yeah, there's that. Um, but the back to what I was trying to go through, the beginning scene. Um, sure. In the lecture, there's three scenes that Toshi Gon goes over with his assistant. She... The, the MC, basically. Um, and he goes over the beginning scene, the middle scene, which I'm actually on right now, where I paused it, the uh, the graphic uh, violations, wow. air quotes violations scene, yeah. um, and then the ending. Not the not the fight or the chase, excuse me, but like in the um, in the institution, excuse me, the mental institution, excuse me. Oh, okay, sure. Um, so the beginning, he kind of he alludes to something. I was very impressed. I thought he was gonna like stand in front of like a college or a university room lecture hall, and like do it. It was literally like a classroom. Like we're talking <laughs> classrooms as an elementary school almost. So like oh, wow. or like you would see in college. So uh, if you, I was impressed by that. There's only like probably fifteen people in there, but I, I didn't have a problem with that. I think it's still very well. But I thought he was gonna like you know stand up in front of all these people and give he's. Toshi Kon's a very funny guy. He's a very, like, easygoing guy. So you think, like, oh, he's very, like, super serious, and there's some of those, like, prima donna Marlon Brando-type uh, actors, uh, directors, who are very, you know, like, uptight, and they have an air of, not arrogance, but high class to them. Toshi Kon is not that. He's sophisticated, yes, but he's also very easy to get, get along with, I'd say. Yeah, he definitely seems that way. Like, he just seems like a, a pretty normal dude, which is cool. Or at least he did, R.I.P., yeah, rest rest in peace, my friend. Yeah. Um, but anyway, sorry to to go on with this. Um, the beginning scene kind of he alludes to because basically he was stating that listen, this is my read on the film. I made the piece doesn't mean like everything in there is what I say it is. So and I I really enjoy that that he a director has the power to do that where they can or the, the artist itself can make a piece of art and it's not a hundred percent what they say it is. Mm-hmm. Which is great. It leads it to subjectivity. It's like, that's interesting. I don't think there's a... You need to have that... I think we need both subjectivity and objectivity, but I think there needs to be a lot more subjective pieces of art nowadays. I think there is. It's just all counterculture and behind the scenes. you got to look that stuff up for yourself. you got to look for it, and it's going to be hard to look for it, but it's there. You just have to look for yeah. it. Check out Denis Villeneuve's uh, work. <laughs> Early stuff. I would say Dune's pretty mainstream, but even then, he's it's still a passion project for him. Well, even something like Blade Runner... Uh, 2049 I feel like had some of that in there and uh, oh yeah and uh, Arrival so he sneaks it in like every other picture he, he throws out something like that that's true yeah it's 
an enemy, of course. Uh, yeah, I wonder, I wonder if he'll... I don't think he'll be making any, like, in-between films between Doom Part 2 anytime soon. Probably not, no. Yeah, right into that. That'd be but. funny if he did, but uh, that'd, that'd, yeah, that'd be interesting. Um, anyway, so the scene, the beginning scene, he basically is like... So we see, like, the Power Rangers. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Or as he calls them, Powertrons. Um, like, two things, at least what I can remember, is that, one, he didn't know if, like... Obviously, he eventually did know that there was going to be theatrical, but at first he thought that they were going to be uh, doing an OVA. Maybe that's why the beginning part looks a little like mm. air quotes cheap to me. It's I know it's not, but I'm just saying like air quotes. It looks lower quality to me. Um, the animation does at least. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's not. But like at first he thought it was an, so. Maybe that's like initially like okay, this is going to be OVA. So like here's we're going to like save this money for this. But then they like heard that maybe later they were like oh yeah we're going to make a theatrical release for this. Like oh okay, so they got more budget. I don't know. So the gag he kind of put was that with the powertrons and bug or whatever he called so, something for latin um he's he was saying that he wanted people to th because he knows what an ova is he thought well it's not very mainstream and you know as, as we found out it can be very ultra violent um and so he kind of had a gag in the beginning of like people who watch this film are gonna say like oh it's an ova if they've heard of it and then it's not. <laughs> so that's like gag number one, if you find that funny. And two, it's a good opening scene. And he, I love that he mentioned this because I've, I've heard this like plenty of times and like, you know, certain directors are asked like, you know, about their work and how they did it. Um, he, he, once again, he's a good director, like a universal director in that he knows that if you want to get an audience in on your picture, you got to really give them a hook. Uh, like really like open them with a hook. Now, obviously the Powertrons probably aren't a great hook, but, but, uh, what he was talking about was that they were all wearing masks and that there's personas involved with this. And it's like, he went on to say how the film itself, again, his read on it, is almost like, you know, uh, Mima has like a persona. She has her idol persona and then she has her actor persona. And whether she is herself or not, like if there's the real Mima or not, that's a different thing. He says like, you know, persona in Latin is like mask basically and person itself extrapolated is you know based off of persona so it's like are we all masks ourselves very interesting stuff he was putting out there oh that's funny um that what you're just saying mirrors very much what me and eric were talking about in our persona episode because we also got into the uh, that meaning masks and it was also about an actress kind of struggling between two identities so some mirrored uh, kind of topics and also a surrealist film so that's kind of fun interesting very interesting whether that was Satoshi Kone, like, ripping... I don't think he was ripping it off. Um, no, this was a novel, so he was adapting that novel. So we'll read the novel at one point. Yeah, you know, that could be... The, maybe the novel was inspired, because Persona, Eric did mention this, is the most written about film in film history. <laughs> so, apparently. Interesting. Yeah, very, very famous uh, thrillist film. It only takes one, and then everybody's ripping it off, or homaging it, excuse me. <laughs> But yeah, definitely lots of struggles with identity, and uh, gets again curious once you enter in the potential supernatural elements. Which I'm very curious what your thoughts are there, because I feel like these two times when I've watched it, I've had different opinions on whether the supernatural element actually exists or not. So. I'd like to hear those opinions if you don't mind. Yeah, so the, we have this whole plot about Mima's room, this place where 
uh, maybe potentially the creepy guy that we saw at the start of the film is writing out Mima's thoughts as the pop idol version of her on a, on the internet on the internet sorry on a web page on the internet yeah on a web page and writing about like oh this is her life and th- this other Mima this one who's trying to be an actress and doing all these kind of kind of smutty type of films and film shoots or uh, or photography shoots and the real Mima is trapped and she's trying to she she wishes she could have her career back and you wonder like like oh you think it's just some creepy guy throughout the beginning of the film who is obsessed with her like an ultimate fan and he's wanting her to come back to who she is but partway through the film Mima starts seeing this this pop idol version of herself talking to her and it pops up the first time when she agrees to do a rape scene in, in the show that she's working on where the pop idol version refuses to do it and then later on in the film it seems as though this creepy guy is possessed by the pop idol version of her and then later on in the film the ultimate killer turns out also to be possessed maybe but again i started to wonder like is is all this stuff true i mean we see a scene where a murder happens and mima has the evidence in her room like she has the outfit covered in blood and it's like did she commit the murder is it only her who's crazy and these people aren't even actually there like maybe Rumi went crazy maybe that's real but maybe the the creepy dude isn't real because sometimes she sees him and she'll like blink and he'll be gone like i didn't notice that the first time there's a scene where she uh she's doing a film shoot and then he appears and she stumbles over a line and then he cuts back and he's gone it's like oh is he ever actually there so so i was definitely confused i wasn't sure if it was just her who's mentally ill and this supposed other version of herself is just her own mental illness kind of appearing but then you get things like um again like maybe that guy is actually there is possessed and maybe maybe uh rumi really is possessed too i'm not sure but <laughs> but i was curious what you thought that's a good that's a good uh reading on it because i didn't have that i i I didn't think there was any supernatural elements to this whole film. I wasn't expecting because he's he's real. the The stalker is real because in the beginning we see those teenagers beat him up. Mm-hmm. Like he goes up to them and then they're physically there and he beats them up. Or sorry, they beat him up. Yeah. So there's no like I'm pretty sure that's a give of like no he's real. Um, how he like disappeared i'm just gonna say either movie magic because <laughs> you always see that where you know you look at somebody and then all of a sudden like you know cars or some object will pass by and they're gone like that's just a standard movie trope uh of just like instant teleportation <laughs> i guess it could be also that maybe her her kind of fixation maybe just focuses on him too and sometimes we see him as he's actually there sometimes he's not actually there because she is definitely seeing things so <laughs> yeah no it's interesting because when she first interacts with him at a distance, of course, with the teenagers at their little like, I don't know, say sleazy, but they're like you know outdoors like idol show, yeah. um, and not in like a like a concert setting, but like I don't even know what you would call it because it was like the Powertrons were there first, so it's like a children's stage in a way, and then it's like the idol group. I don't know what you would call it, but like kind of open space area. It's like a, almost like a carnival because I think I saw some like rides in the background. So mm. like an amusement park attraction, kind of like, yeah, I guess you say, well, like what uh, the P&E does yeah. uh, when they have all those. But that's not as like, it's weird for, I, I can't describe it, but like it's a little like lower budget, but 
Peony is certainly not low budget, but whatever. That's besides the point. So once she interacts with him, as far as I'm aware, there was no real prior. Like she seems, other than wanting to be an actor, there's no real prior like problem she's having. Maybe some stress, but not like. Once she gets the job and once she sees that guy over recurring and then she finds out about Mima's homepage, um, mm -hmm. that's when things start to like, when she starts to like, get very paranoid, very obsessed with like, either she's being stalked or like, questioning her own like decision of becoming an actor. And it all manifests eventually into... Like, as she's going home on the train, eventually manifests into her, like, her reflection uh, appearing as her idol self, her, the idol singer, basically, as you, as you stated. And, again, I didn't think of it as possession. I could see what you mean by, or, like, supernatural. I could see what you meant by that in the end with the chase scene, but even then I was still thinking, like, no, I could sort of see this being, like, real, air quotes. Yeah. And, and we also see the possession when the creepy guy's writing the room, the Mima's room, um, blog. Like it's like Mima talking into his ear. Oh yeah, that too. And I even wondered if maybe the blog, this viewing, I wondered if she herself was writing it when she switches into the other persona. And that's another reason why I wondered if he was even really there or if that was just her kind of latching onto this kind of ugly version of herself or something. I don't know. <laughs> It's like a, yeah, it's like a, not a post-hypnotic suggestion, but it's most certainly like a, how do I put this? It's like he's seeing her as well. I think, yeah, I think it's like some sort of dissociative identity disorder. Or maybe not that, but well, I can't say schizophrenia because, again, I'm, I'm, I'm not knowledgeable in all these terms. I don't want to just be like a normie who just states this. It's like, oh, yeah, it's this. It's like, listen, I'm not an expert on this stuff, so I don't want to say it. But he's certainly projected her into his mind and I could almost see that where she like he, she actually that virtual Mima as uh, Shitoshi Kon refers to her uh, she ex like she exists I can almost almost see it like occurring where it's like it's it's all in his head um, where everything is in people's head because they're either not diluted but there's they're, something's up with their brain chemistry in that they're seeing these hallucinations of some sort. Mm -hmm. So that's what I, that's my read in the film. You could say it's supernatural, but I, at least in this first viewing, I don't see it as supernatural. Yeah, and again, I'm I'm really not sure. Because there's lots of other things that I feel confused about too. Like there's almost an element of maybe even the murders aren't necessarily happening because she starts losing track of whether she's the character that she's playing on this show about a murder mystery done brilliantly yeah <laughs> and again i at a certain point i wondered like oh like maybe she's so lost at this point that these murders aren't actually happening she's just completely captured by her character and thinking that that's what she the world she's in but then by the end it, it becomes more difficult to really go down that that road so well yeah done again Cone, brilliant like just absolutely brilliant i love that he uh set up the fact that she's want to be an actor in this very very like graphic slash drama heavy um murder mystery series um i assume it's ongoing it's <laughs> daytime television so proper potentially I don't, I don't think so but certainly along the lines of that of she becomes this like character inserted not inserted but like all of a sudden like just shows up 
and goes from like a small role like with one line to eventually being very her character taking a very different turn mm-hmm. especially after the violation scene but I love what Cone did like just pairing the murders that are actually happening in real life with uh, the ones on the show and again I, I, I found it to be pretty easy to follow uh, obviously like towards the end when they start cutting and we're like you have to you have to like have a big like flow chart of like okay is this is this, does this scene make sense with this but I really like that like you know time because even the beginning of the film we see like her talking to her mother and I think they cut away to something else um, there was a flashback scene when she first reads the homepage of like her daily routine and what she does uh, that was different though that was an actual flashback which is hilarious some of these could be flashbacks but again cutting in and out I love that and I think I just I don't know I found it pretty easy to follow there were obviously certain ones where I was like yeah what is this um, like if if that was happening in real time or not uh, but I, I loved it yeah I, I, I definitely did like like those uh, those parts to it mm-hmm. like the scene where she's getting assaulted potentially the second time but it's real this time um that was and then like she kills the guy the stalker and then turns out it was like an action it was actually it was a uh it was actually all like a uh a take for the the show itself i was like oh that's good that that's really good mm-hmm. um but i i assumed it was real because he was still a legitimate person like he he is a real person and so either she killed him or just knocked him out and gave him some blunt trauma to the head well we do see the body later yes we do but again i wondered because we see that he was like a guard at that event and i don't know yeah i couldn't tell at a certain point i thought maybe they went back to that same place or maybe it's just the same place when she got raped or the for the show it's it was the same so. set it was the same set where they uh she was assaulted yeah. or her character excuse me was assaulted yeah but i was i kept wondering like i mean maybe he was actually attacking her but maybe that was just in the show and she just fixated on this guy and she just went and killed this random guy who didn't wasn't actually doing anything <laughs> well that's true but no we still we see him all the time and we see him from his perspective by the way in the beginning we see him have his hand out under her as she's like performing the song mm-hmm uh, we see we see him like from his eye, from his point of view of what he's doing. So he's a real person. I don't I don't deny that. Yeah, I'm not I'm not saying that he wasn't that he wasn't there. I'm saying maybe the role that he takes in the in the movie isn't actually what the guy was really doing. Maybe it was because again, if you if you take it all as literally happening, then you got to wonder were these three characters, Rumi, him, and then Mima, were they all having the exact same delusion at the same time? I would say yes. I I confidently say yes to that, just because they're well, with 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 what's happening with their men- mental condition right now, their mental state. Um, because one, I could believe that he is an obsessive fan. He's a stalker with a crush on on Mima, and given that she, he's given inside information about her, um, I can see like him developing this virtual Mima persona inside of his mind. Uh, and that she's actually talking to him, I can I can believe that, especially with who it, who the real like you know killer or at least you know from what I believe is the real killer, which is Rumi. Uh, brilliant once again of of the twist being her 
her manager, her agency. Mm-hmm. That's what it was her. I think I think it was her agent, right? There was there's yeah. the guy and there's her. Yeah, it was an ex-pop icon who never really, whose career never really recovered after they broke up. Oof. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, his uh, his band, I mean, not not him and Mima. Oh, Rumi, I mean. Yeah, Rumi. Okay. Yeah, because I mentioned that. Yeah, she was also a pop pop star. Just yeah, her career kind of died. Oh, that's right. I didn't actually find that out. I thought it was the guy you were talking about. No, yeah, they mentioned about her, but again, some of these scenes are confusing with the, the way they say things. But that's fair. But yeah, it would have been for her. I feel like her motivation would have been more straightforward, of just being like, "Oh, you know, you're you could have been what I could have been, but you." You know, you soured it by going down this road and taking these these roles. But even at the end, she seems to get confused and think that she is Mima. And she's like, oh, I need to, you're the false one, I need to kill you too. So again, it's all the exact same delusion. That's why I think it's maybe even more far-fetched to believe that they're all... But again, it's a film, it could have its own rules. But it seems more far-fetched to believe that they're all having the same delusion. Rather than this really is this embodied, separate kind of a supernatural element yeah this phantom that the lead is is all everything she's seeing is all incorrect because of her delusions so yeah it's um unreliable narrator yeah i it uh, the film is certainly not always on Mima, but th- uh, then again i was wondering if it's like extension of like if we see Mima, then we can at least like pull the camera back to characters that we can hear that are still in her vicinity rather than just like jumping. I don't know. That's a good question. I, that's a good, I don't know about that. Yeah, because we get scenes of at least that creepy guy on his own doing his own stuff, like when he's writing the, the blog. Yeah. But again, that could just be Mima herself <laughs> writing them. But they do introduce that she didn't have a computer and didn't have computer knowledge. Like there's that cute scene where they set up the computer. She's all proud of herself because she could manage to track down the website. <laughs> after Rumi helped her with it. Yeah, after Rumi helped her with it. Oh, boy, by the way, uh, any, like, teenagers or kids watching this now, uh, when they get when they see that printer and all of a sudden, like, something prints out of there, they're like, what the heck is that? That, kids, is a fax machine. Yep, getting the little trader messages. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that, that, that was of the times, which I like. That was instant me- messaging back in the day, other than, you know, the email. <laughs> but physical instead. Mm-hmm. One day I tell you, fax machines are going to make a comeback. I mean, they're still used. It's not like they aren't, but... Yeah, still used, yeah. Um, my, uh, my parents still use theirs. Yeah, it's still used in, like, a business sense. Yeah. Um, people nowadays, of course, they're not going to do that, but... Anyways, uh, I've never used a fax machine, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I'm a... I think I maybe used them when I was a kid, just playing around with my parents' one, but I never got a fax that was actually for me or anything like that. So <laughs> I've got mail, but I've never gotten a fax. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I think that everything is in the characters' heads and that there is no Phantom Menace. Yeah, that's certainly, that's certainly a reading. I, I mean, I think all three of these readings have their own issues. Like, I don't think any of them are really could really be conclusive because none of them would really necessarily make sense on their own of course i don't think so like again i wonder like even in the the tv show the double blind or is it double bind um uh good question actually i don't remember if it is or not (laughs) yeah they even talk about in the show like oh in her delusions like this other version of herself is possessing people 
And so I was like, oh, okay, this is that a signal for something? And Oh, yeah, because, okay, so her character in the show, for our call, she has dissociative identity disorder. Yes. Where she has these two personas within her. Um, again, kind of like allegory to, you know, what she's pure, like what's what she's going through in the whole movie of identity. God, I want to give like Mima a consensual hug. Yeah, and I think it's also interesting to note that her a second identity didn't appear until after she read the script for that show. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like we saw her reading the script and agreeing to the rape scene, and then the next scene is when the second Mima appears. So, so that's interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know whether it's. See, I, I like seeing it quickly. It was on the train. That's when like I saw the persona kind of first um, materialize. Yep. Um, Saying that she refused to do the scene. Yep. Now, whether that was after she did the scene, I'm pretty sure not because she, there's clearly I think evidence of her after the scene happening. Yeah, it was. It was uh, when she first read the script and agreed to do it. Is when the thing appeared, being like, "No, I'm not. Yeah. I refuse to let you do that." Yeah, so that's where it was. I was saying initially, like, when she first interacted with that fan, that stalker, was when all this stuff started occurring. But I think you're more on the money where she reads the script and then all of a sudden, yeah, this all the stress is materializing in this, you know, this reflection of her uh, stating, like, no, you can't do this. Like, this is not what I, the pop singer, would want. Yeah, and she starts... I think that's around the time when she starts seeing that guy everywhere. Like, during the rape scene, she even sees him in the studio watching. Yep. I'm sure he's not there during that part. That's how he sneak in. <laughs> yeah, no. However he, yeah, how he got in there is beyond me. Like, he was waiting at her agency, and, you know, she goes in the elevator and sees him again. Like, at a distance, of course. Like, he's clearly there, as far as I'm aware. And hanging out with the press, we see him, too. Some of them, I'm definitely... I'm sure he, he couldn't be there, but... Again, who knows? Yeah, you can make an argument for him not being at the when she's going to the agency scene. You can make that, but the, I will I will still state that the first scene where he's getting beat up by teenagers, he's clearly a our character. Yeah, and he like winks at her with the face covered in blood. So. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. So it's not like he, you know, fish guy isn't real looking, but. I guess, I guess, because we're on, you know, we're, we're we're at this point right now, and I'm about to watch it again. Um, oh yeah, he is, he kind of is like, at least in the background somehow, but yeah, since we're at this, you know, the violation scene, should we talk about it? Oh yeah, that's a big pivotal moment. Yeah. Yeah. So on this show, her agent and I guess her, cause she has her kind of the person who's managing Sham, which is Rumi. Yep. And then her agent, who's that kind of sleazy semi-sleazy i should say uh guy i forget what his name yep. is mr uh tata something <laughs> yeah so I, I don't remember <laughs> yeah and he's kind of hammering the crew for this double bind show because she got on just doing one one line kind of thing and he's like you? he's like oh you know yeah who are you <laughs> which again great uh, great thing to focus on keeps repeating in her mind the who are you uh line wondering about herself but yeah, he's kind of hammering, like, oh, you know, you should use her again. She's a star on the rise, you know. And the uh, the writer can't figure out an ending. Yeah. So he latches on, like, oh, maybe I could introduce this girl and she could be my ending. And so in order to kind of introduce her, her messed up mental state, they use a rape scene as the breaking point for her. And... 
Yeah, how do you think that scene? Because the first time I watched this, I found it quite disturbing, that rape scene. Um, this time I found it a little more interesting than just straight up disturbing. But So, two... A lot of things to go through. One, the sleazy, you know, uh, other assistant, the male one. Um, he... Cone said that he's a interesting character, not mm -hmm. a bad guy. And he even has regrets about the scene itself afterwards, so... yeah. Obviously sleazy for talking her into doing it, but it shows that he at least had regrets. Maybe okay, man, that makes him a better character, but like he at least has a um, a conscious and a moral of like, okay, maybe this was a little too far. And but initially with the scene itself, um, one they obviously like they they tell you it's a they let you know it's a you know a, it's a shot like it's it's fake, mm -hmm. but given the tone of the film so far you could almost make it look as it is real um that's what's interesting about it and they keep stopping it i think they stop it twice so she she recognized the artifice the first time the actor even apologized like i'm so sorry for doing this oh can i can i just say that i don't know why i know this is probably messed up and i i'm like wrong this is all by the way animation so like the the real voice actor didn't like i i hope didn't violate the other actor the bima actor but like <laughs> well, can i just say it's i don't know why reassuring and like i just i don't know but i'm just weird but i like the fact that he apologizes to her like before he does it i mean that's probably still mucked up but i'm just like i don't know I, I like that that they intentionally put that in there I would have liked it, and I was thinking about this for weeks, by the way. Not weeks, but when I first watched it, the scene did get to me, but I also saw, like, what it was about. But it kept haunting me of, like, you know, it's clearly fake, but... Oh, that's... Yeah, that's... The way they shot it. That's the whole point. Yeah, I mean, it's clearly fake, but she's in a very fragile state. I mean, she was... She's not mentally sound right now. Yeah, I mean, we could say that the, uh... That the... Her agent's a more complicated figure, but... I mean, he did go like, oh, you know, we did all this effort to, you know, get her, we don't want to complain now. Kind of putting that out for, hey, don't complain. You know, we did all this work to help you advance your career. Just kind of take this job. And she keeps saying like, yes, I'll do it. Like, I'm okay with doing it. It's like, I don't know about that. And you can tell she's like, oh, you know, my parents, I'm sure gonna not be happy to see it, but. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember that part. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very disturbing in its way. And then during the scene, she just keeps focusing on all the people who are watching the scene. Like, there's, of course, the men that are around him, the extras, but she keeps yep. focusing on all the different people in the room at the time. Just kind of laughing, and yeah, and that's that's on its own. I mean, you, you hear about some of these kind of more intimate scenes these days, and they'll, like, clear out most of the, most of the crew for it. Yep. They'll be just the essential people just to help the actors feel comfortable, but not her. And she's got the big light there above her, and... Oh, and below her as well. Oh, yeah. It made me kind of think of uh, Female Prisoner Scorpion there with the lights. Yeah, they got the... I, I don't know about that, but that was just because it's the... Uh, it's, the it's the stage itself, or at least the, the scene itself has that, but... Yeah, maybe not an intentional reference, but it did, did make me think of it. But, yeah, and then they keep stopping and starting the scene as, as they're trying to get through it. Yeah, that's right. So they... Watching the scene right now, yeah, they, they, they like the camera was off or something like that and so um they had, they had to like restart it and it's like oh golly that's that's not great at all um yeah i don't know whether they use like a okay in the show i know this doesn't matter but i don't know if they use like a gag penis or 
something else, but like, well, maybe maybe we don't want to get into these details, but yeah, no, that's that's fair. I wish, like, personally, I I wish this is just my like head cannon. I wish that yeah, he's even. I'm looking at the other like, uh, I'm looking watching it right now. I'm seeing the uh, other agent. He's like just he's not crying, but he's like just looking all like stressed. He's like, what have I done? Like he realizes what he's made her do, and he's like, oh golly, like what have I? He's realizing his consequences. Well, yeah, he, he, he can't stomach it himself, but let's not forget, even at the end of the, later in the movie, he's got another script for where he's like, oh, it's got some, you know, questionable scenes, but don't worry about it, we'll just plow ahead. Oh, I guess so. And so he, he may have been uncomfortable in the moment, but that doesn't change his uh, wanting to kind of use her for this kind of stuff. Yeah. And he, he probably in his own mind thinks he's helping advance his her career and doesn't really think about the consequences, but... Yeah. I mean, it should be clear to everyone around her at a certain point that she's not mentally stable anymore. But... Yeah, she's clearly not mentally sound. Yeah. Um, and, uh, um, yeah, in my head, the, the, the actor and Mimo would have, like, a conversation. They'd go over it. They'd get to know each other just so they could do it so they're comfortable, more comfortable with it. Maybe that will happen off screen. I'm, I'm just trying to make it, like, look better than it really is. But, again, this is all a scene that was, like, in... It wasn't like it was all fake, but it still felt real, which is yeah, that's the that's the weird thing about it, right? Like that's the complicated thing about it. That's what's super cool about it, because even though it's a violation scene where, you know, she's consenting to be involved, she's doing this as an acting job, they even remind you again and again it's not real. But it's still just as much of a violation for her and it's still such a kind of breaking point for her psyche. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, oh definitely. Um it's really clever. Oh, yeah, up front, this was the next scene that Soshi Kone did in his lecture. And he said he regrets the scene. <laughs> oh, really? Interesting. Yeah, he's like, um, we shouldn't have done this. <laughs> maybe not, okay, maybe not like disowning it, but he's certainly like saying, like, yeah, this was a little, this is a little too much. <laughs> yeah, I can understand that. Yeah. And so, obviously, it's funny that people that are fans of this film might, like, devoted fans of this film might say, you have to leave this scene in here for this reason. Um, you're just cutting out art. He's still like, it doesn't matter. It's still, like, still not great. Not great, but, like, the subject matter is still, like, really ridiculous. But um, Yeah, and it's funny. You, you see this a lot with uh, filmmakers who, in their younger years, are willing to push more buttons, take more risks, and then when they get older, they lose the stomach for it. Oh, yeah. I can totally understand that, but I mean, I think the film, I think that moment's very impactful for the the story. So <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. No, you you understand why. Um, with uh, with this scene though, he said that um, one, she's wearing like a maid outfit, but it's also like obviously she's supposed to be like a a, a working girl or a working woman. Excuse me. Yeah. Uh, at like a, a strip club, and. What he mentioned was that her outfit is, was intentionally designed to look like her idol's outfit. Mm. Um, obviously a little more, I guess, revealing. Um, but I like that part. And he also stated that his... Um, one, she's wearing white as well, by the way. Like, that's, it's all white. So that's, mm -hmm. you know, I think that's a important image of, of Japanese culture, if I recall. And then... The other thing is that she's very in the in the beginning scene she's closed like she's like in almost like the fetal position, and he's like oh yeah they have to pry her opened, I yeah. that, that, that's kind of obvious. And then 
talking about her being like violated as the man is like you know thrusting basically grinding on her um he said that you can't do three of those apparently in, in like in movies in japan like you're only allowed to do like two and then third you're getting in trouble apparently <laughs> oh that's interesting yeah, whether that's changed or not is beyond me. By the way, I should say, mention the lecture happened after P Paprika was released and, like, I think a year before he died. So, like, either 2009 oh, wow. or 2010. So, just giving you all a reference of, like, when he did this. So, this was clearly, like, 10 years later from when he did the film. Interesting. Hmm. So, yeah, just to point that out. And then afterwards, as after the scene occurs, and, you know, the scene I'll get to in a second, uh, she's in the backstage and she's wearing black and it looks like she's praying mm. she's not but like she's like has her head bowed and her hands like near her waist uh or maybe chest so it's like could be prayer again his this is all his like take from the film funny enough yeah and i i think it's important to point out during that scene too as she's looking at all the faces of like the the leering men around her yep she like starts to dissociate and see all the cheering fans and then pops back into her other persona the pop idol uh i don't know about cheering i don't remember if that was again i just watched the scene but i don't think it was cheering fans i thought it was just like the the uh guy the 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 obnoxious men like you know cheering at her being violated uh and then like her face of how like just first she was screaming it was also the screaming again once again the screaming got to me that's what it was yeah it was like just her, like, and she sold it very well. The voice actor, the real life voice actor, sold that that scream very well. Um, yep, that's what was haunting. But it was cheering fans. It's when she fully dissociates. She's like looking at the light, and it starts to like flash around, it like changes shape almost, and then suddenly she cuts to back being in a concert. She's the pop idol, and all these adoring fans calling her name. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm looking at that right now. That was, I thought, a memory. I I assumed that, yeah, this was a memory of when she was back as a pop singer. So, like, yeah, there's a split between, like, she's now part of this, like, you know, grimy world. And there goes, you know, Idol Mima, if that's what you're saying. Oh, you know, I took it as a dissociation. Oh. For, like, having to remove herself from the moment. And then, because this is the first time that we see her kind of... I mean, they don't necessarily make it clear, but this is almost like her losing time. She's there, and then suddenly she's back in the chair, kind of doing her makeup. And maybe it doesn't come across that way, but I was just kind of connecting those dots because we see a ton of that later in the movie. Yeah, that's true. So I thought maybe that was the, the first occurrence of it. But Yeah, that's fair. Okay, fair, fair enough. I mean, I, I took it as, like, from my point of view, I took it as, this, this viewing, excuse me, I took it as her, uh, at the end thinking of an, a memory of being an idol um, mm. but I think yours is also warranted yeah it could be maybe a reflection of you know maybe yeah what she was before yeah because she looks in the mirror uh, in the backstage and it kind of like well the, the background in the scene of her as the idol and all the screaming fans is there's light behind them and then the light we kind of I don't know pan out but we see like the light uh, having come to her uh, and turns it off. So I'm like, I assume the memory came from the mirror. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I guess I could see that. Oh, and I do like that scene when she gets in the, the car with um, the producer. And he has to make up an excuse for Rumi went because she broke down in tears and just left. Yep. 
And he's like, oh, I'll get you some ice cream. And she's like, oh, lucky me. Like, she's got such an innocent quality to her. Dude, she walks in, like, she, like, obviously we saw her previously in the backstage, and she, like, feels, you know, violated. We'll, we'll get to a scene, we'll, we'll, we'll show what happens there. But, um, yeah, she, she looks, she looks very, like, reserved and, and in her head at that point, very quiet. And then she goes into the car, she's like, got a smile on her face. Man, this woman's an actor. Like, she's yeah. certainly putting on a mask about it, and that's the whole point of this movie, is about masks. Yeah, like she is just taking it straight. It's it's no different than like how, you know, I'll I will use humor to um, uh, redirect or what's the term, um, whatever it's called, uh, redirect uh, from how I'm feeling, just because you know I'm always because stress in my life. I, I don't want to like always appear um, angry or, or or sad or anything like that. So I'll just use humor to break up uh, the situation. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I yeah, she definitely plays that kind of. She she plays more like a passive, like, just always kind of cheery kind of vibe that she's putting yeah. on. Yeah. It's her kind of yeah her defense mechanism. That's what it is. Yeah, the defense mechanism, and that all breaks when she comes home, and mm-hmm. passage of time reveals that her tetra fish, um, cool fish by the way, um, have mm-hmm. all passed away. Okay, sorry. Almost all of them have died. Yeah, I think in this at this point she sees all of them as dead. And it just it breaks whatever hold she was having and she just, just like destroys her place and then goes, "Oh, of course I didn't want to do it. Like I just didn't want to cause any trouble." Yeah, it was very sad. <laughs> yeah, literally, of course I didn't want to do it. <laughs> yeah, very sad. Yeah, and then who shows up? It was her alternate self. Yep. And and then, what she like throws a pillow at the screen, and then sees herself, yeah. and then sees the, the mirror, all the yeah. were still alive. Um, well, I no, only two are alive. Well, we see two of them now, but later in the movie, we see the rest of them there. I think the two is just kind of. Is that are you? Sh- oh, really? Okay, I thought that was in Rumi's room. Oh, I thought we saw them here too, because I thought the point was that they were that they were alive. It was just she was seeing them as dead. Okay. I well, okay. I, I guess I took that as like. It was in Rumi's room instead. Yeah, I wish I could have fast forward to see, but <laughs> I don't know if I'd miss. But maybe, maybe it wasn't Rumi's room, I think. Or Mima's room. Or room. Yeah, it gets confusing. Because <laughs> it's supposed to be Mima's room, the uh, the website embodied, right? That that place where she goes. Yeah, of course. But, <laughs> but yeah, where do we go from here? What, what else did you want to kind of highlight? Uh, good question, actually. Um... Let's, well, what other notes do you have? Hmm. Well, I did want to talk about some of the murder scenes, but I don't know if we want to get to them just Let's yet. Let's go ahead. I don't see a problem with that. Oh, actually, that's weird. Because um, I'm currently... I got onto a scene with... Um, oh, it's it's Mima reading through this. She gets obsessed with reading the Mima's Room website. Just reading it over and over again and being like, Oh, none of this stuff is true. Like, all this is a fantasy. And then she sees a picture of the real Mima in her mind pop idol she's like oh i'm the one writing this then she like climbs out of the computer and runs over and hops into that guy as he's writing and stands behind him and like oh yeah you can help me out here so that's interesting it's almost like she's because it's coming from her perspective seeing the thing kind of jumping out and going to him so again i wonder oh yeah that scene yeah i remember yeah i remember that scene you're talking about so again it makes me wonder like well what's what are we supposed to take from that 
I, again, I take it as it's all in everybody's head, but an argument can be made that it is like a Phantom Menace. Yeah, because first it hops out of the, uh, first it hops out of the computer and hangs out with her, and then jumps out of her window and goes to the other guy's apartment. So, so again, that's why I was wondering if maybe it was like her own mental illness kind of fixating on that guy, and kind of, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if it was fixating on him as much as it was like, again, she's kind of fixated on herself and like what she, how she feels about her identity as this actor now. Um, cause she has, all, she did all these TV show, uh, interviews. So mm-hmm. she was, she was always putting up a, a mask of like, yeah, no, I have, as an actor, I have to, you know, like step up my game. And obviously that's, is not helping. And again, stress levels are increasing and we see more of this like fake Mima, uh, this, this phantom menace, like, uh, a, 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 what is it? Uh, cackling at her and, uh, making fun of her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I wonder, like, what what's it supposed to mean in, in the movie overall? The Phantom Mima. Like, is it supposed to be, like, maybe the, the shadow of what she used to be influencing these three people? Or is it really supposed to be the embodiment of that other persona? And it's just going around using her body to do its actions, but we're just not seeing it. Kind of like Malignant. I guess they kind of did that with that, too, where the lead would, like... She would imagine that she was like trapped somewhere, and her and really her body was going around committing these crimes. I guess that's spoilers from *Malignant*. <laughs> <laughs> okay, how dare you, sir? Uh, by the way, I just I'm on the scene with um, the writer of *Double Bind*. Literally, is called *Double Bind*. <laughs> oh, *Double the, Bind*. Uh, yeah, with the piece of paper and blood that the uh, the killer puts on him, or puts on his parking stall. Excuse me. Yeah, and I remember the music for that scene. I think that's the first time it kind of kicks in with that like rocking. Or maybe that one, I can't remember, was that the one where it was, uh, like, the band's music playing as he gets murdered? Yeah, because that's another recurring theme, is that the pop idol music group itself, Cam's music, is kind of played throughout the film. Yeah. Yeah, I think that one, we don't actually see the murder. I don't I don't think it's till the uh, photographer, where we really, like, watch the sequence of the killing. Yeah, he goes into the, what is it, he goes into the, uh, goes into the elevator, looks, finds a stereo, and then goes into the elevator goes up and then we see him murdered oh, okay see so, yeah, that was the next one that i was wanting to uh kind of highlight door opens and both his eyes are gone are gouged out yeah and that's another thing this killer goes for the eyes often i think with the photographer eyes are a window into the soul <laughs> yeah yeah that that could be that could be what they're doing um but let's see what else do i got here well you said you want to talk about the killing so the, the murders so i mean like we just talked about it so like well, yeah, again, it wasn't that one. I, it was the photographer one that I wanted to highlight. Okay. Yeah, because that, that's one of those ones that feels like it's taken... It could be taken out of any giallo. Oh, I see your point. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, with the, the way the music kind of, like... Because with giallos, they have a funny thing where they kind of... When the murder scenes kick in, they're supposed to, like, get you pumped up and almost make you a part of the murder. Like, it's always a black glove killer. You see the hand POV going into the body kind of thing. Oh, yeah, that's right. And so it's like you're the one killing it. So they, they use the, the music to kind of really pump you up and get you hyped for it. And I feel like that exhilarating kind of photographer killing scene had the same kind of vibe. And they played him up as such a creep during his photography scenes. And 
So you kind of want to see this guy get it a little bit. Yeah, that's certain. Yeah, that's that's pretty. I'm surprised the murder didn't happen on the uh, guy who air quotes violated Mima. That's that's interesting. Yeah, again, he wasn't the one who, who put her in that position. He was just an actor who happened to be a. That's why the screenwriter got it. Yeah, that's true. But that is the only one that we see with Mima playing the role as the murderer instead of either uh, Rumi or or um, creepy guy. I can't remember his name if they gave him one. <laughs> I don't think they do. Uh, the stalker. Yeah, the stalker. Yeah, well, they do. Uh, and uh, yeah, Cohn mentions it in the lecture. He gives him a name. I think it's even in the because he does speak, if I recall. So he does have a name. I, I forget what it was called. Yeah, and it's during this photographer scene where we get the cover for the uh, Shout Factory Steelbook. Of her with her arms raised up with a picture of her other identity beside it. That's the uh, the Steelbook cover if you've seen it. Yep. Oh, well, I have it, so yeah. Oh, oh, I didn't realize you had that version. Nice. Didn't I? I sent you that picture on Discord. Wasn't that it? Oh, I, I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I have the poster of it for pit sakes. Oh, that's right, you do. Yeah, that's awesome. I wish I had that. I've only got the, the first Blu-ray that they put out. Oh, here comes... I'm watching it right now. Here comes the photo shoot scene. Yeah, and, and we see... Because uh, we occasionally we see the other two members of Cham throughout. Yep. And they're talking. They're like, oh, you know, he's famous for getting girls to uh, take all their clothes off. So I guess that's his, his gig. Oh, golly. His eyes are, are fish eyes. Where they're like pointed, like his pupils are, are, are pointing in different directions. Yeah, yeah. Oh boy, and then we cut straight to like a, a cam concert. So it's like, how how obvious, <laughs> not obvious, but how fitting, I guess. Oh, and yeah, they're, and the funny thing is, yeah, the, the, they're, um, as a duo, they're doing really well. And Mima's, mm -hmm. you know, struggling. And you know, here she does this violation scene, and then she does this photo shoot. Yeah, I think it's right after the violation scene where she, uh, comes into her office or at least, like i mean i think that was the previous thing that we saw her shoot and then the two members of cham are in there celebrating like oh we we broke the top 100 and they're taking like uh, drinks together in the office and she's just standing out there listening to them not taking part it's like the further isolation for her very sad <laughs> oh but during the scene when she murders the photographer we get a really cool moment where as she's stabbing him they cut to a piece of his photography she like stab and then when she raises up we'll see like a flash of like her breasts or something like that yep in that one i mean it seems pretty clear that i mean i guess nothing's really clear but <laughs> it definitely seems like she was the one involved with with that murder unless rumi planted the evidence in her room and somehow she's just connected with the, the three of them kind of picturing what's happening yeah it's certainly what i was thinking uh with that but i was like no it really does it, it really doesn't make it clear on that one whether it was her or not yeah but i do think it's interesting that that is the one that we see her her face as she's doing it and you know, the very next day finds the evidence and then kind of just brushes it off like she starts to just fall so much into her acting stuff that it's like it doesn't even really affect her that much but actually i think oh i'm just watching right now let me see yeah at the end of it someone yells okay take three so it's almost like again maybe that murder I mean, we, we see them talking about it happening, but was that another piece of the show that she's confusing with reality? Well, there was that. Actually, that was... I forgot about that. Yeah, there, there is that scene in the show where, like, she's in the... Uh, oh, yeah, the, the bathroom scene. Um, the uh, the scene where the detectives have her in, like, a, a are looking behind a, a two-way mirror, and 
she's being interviewed by, the, or her character, excuse me, is being interviewed by uh, a doctor of some sort or a psychiatrist mm-hmm. and saying that's where she has like uh, dissociative identity disorder. So that's where I thought, okay, this was her character in the show murdering whomever it was because her character in the show is supposed to have a breakdown and, and uh, murder somebody. But yeah, you can make mention of like, okay, they disguise in the show that they, they use that as a front, a smokescreen uh, for the real murder that actually happened. Yeah, I mean, if you really wanted to get into it, we could talk about it's such an unreliable narrator that she really is confusing the fiction of the show with real life. And none of those people are getting murdered until maybe, I don't know. I don't. I, I guess if you're taking it that far, you can extend it all the way to uh, maybe no one got murdered <laughs> until until uh, maybe maybe Rumi. Because I'm assuming Rumi was the one that killed the other agent. Yeah, I believe so. So maybe she killed him and then went to go kill Mima. But at least I say, I I believe that. <laughs> Again, yeah, it's so much, but so kind of purposely hidden. So <laughs> it's hard to really have a definitive read on any of it. Oh, golly, I forgot about this. Oh, yikes! Right, I forgot. Um, so the bathroom scene and jeez, yeah, I forgot about that. Um bathroom scene which one's that uh the uh where she's in the t- bathtub and she puts herself underwater whether she's suffocating herself or not and then she screams out like baka which is multiple speak and which can either mean several things in japanese but mostly is like idiot mm. like moron uh simple-minded or something like that um whether she's referring to herself she's referring to her agents the camera guy we don't know but I, what I was reacting to was her photo shoot where we actually see her vagina. I was like, "Oh, forgot about that." I thought they cut that from this from the standard or this un. Uh, I thought this was a censored version, but it's not. It's oh. like it full on shows it. I was like, "Oh my goodness!" Yeah, and her in the bath there was right after the photography thing, so it almost feels like she like feels like she's dirty, has to like clean herself, just feeling betrayed by all these people around her and herself. Oh yeah. That's probably what she's saying. At least in this, yeah. dub, not dub. At least in this, uh, uh, subtitles she says bastards. Yeah. By the way, she she is. It's it's only that like when, when I reacted, it's like usually in in the uh, in, in in Japanese animations, you'll sometimes see you'll obviously see like na- women like fully naked, but you'll never see like they'll kind of be Barbie doll anatomy almost, where you won't see the vagina. So it's. One of the first times I actually like seen, again, this is because of the tone. I actually see like hair uh, around her like crotch area. Oh, that's interesting. That's why I was like shocked. I was like, "Oh, golly, that's that." Wow, I, I didn't expect that. Yeah, I feel like I've seen it, but I can't give any examples off the top of my head. That's fair. Like in animation, except for maybe uh, Belladonna. Yeah, in animation, I think Belladonna of Sadness. They also focus on that a lot, but but that was a very sexed up anime, but. That's fair. I can't think of any other examples, but, um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know where to go. I've gone through a lot of my notes here for this one. So if you've got any other places to go. Uh, when the, yeah, that's, it's, um, yeah, where else do I want to go with this? Oh, I actually did have one more. Oh, let's hear it. Um, I really do think that this has a great score and I love the scene where uh, Rumi is kind of like the big twist scene. They've got this kind of like choir sounds in the background. It's making me think of Akira. 
with the uh, the way it sounded. I was like, oh, that's super creepy and cool. Yes, that's right. Yeah, there is that. Especially if you watch this, if you the main it, it, they use that as the uh, in the main menu. Oh, it's it's fantastic. Yeah, it's it's either like I wonder if it's similar to like the Ghost in the Shell choir. Not not really because that was a like wedding ceremony, if I recall. Oh, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. Yeah, probably two different like subject matters. It's no different than like certain choirs. So, yeah, watching this uh, movie kind of in piecemeal because I've been skipping back and forth to different pieces. The scene where uh, where Amima is doing her lines and she keeps getting interrupted and can't like keep her train of thought, and she sees the creepy stalker in the the crowd. He is wearing his uh, his security uniform at the time, so maybe that's a a, a clue for us. Maybe with the scenes where he's just wearing that outside of his security setting maybe that's just her fixating on that that one image again i don't know yeah of course yeah whether it's he's actually there or she's not it's, it's a good question next yeah, that's one where she kind of she gets distracted and then when they're like oh what's wrong and she looks up again he's gone so let's see his name is mr tadakoro i believe that's what if i pronounce that correctly oh for the other agent yeah for the other agent yeah oh, okay Oh, but yeah, I feel like I feel like that's about what I've got for this one. Uh, unless you have more, I'm I'm happy to, to jump off some things, but that's all my notes at least. So, <laughs> yeah, that's 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 fair. Uh, any recurring themes and or recurring colors? By the way, that's that's an interesting one. Um, definitely a lot of red and and browns. I think. Yeah, when we when we do when when it comes to these abstract psycho horrors or psychological films you always are surreal ones there's always like a recurring color like directors like to play with color a lot by the way very good color on this like and mm -hmm. i must state this immediately there's no six faces like cone is just mm -hmm. like otomo he is meticulous with like no two faces look the same you could say mima sort of looks like yuki in um uh, uh uh tokyo godfathers but it I don't think she does. I think she's a completely different character in that. Where Cone will go to lengths and leaks to actually like make each character have a real face. And uh, that's that's amazing. I, I, I always appreciate that. Um, just shows how like hardworking they are uh, in making this. And I must also say that Cone was also deliberate in very sh like small picture decisions where he was like, in one of the interviews, not not the lecture, but in one of the interviews, he was like, I was in the minutia of it all because I was thinking of like what kind of apartment some a character would have. I'm like, oh, golly, that's really thoughtful because a, a room certainly determines the kind of person uh, and how their behavior might be if if you go that far with with uh, analyzing it. Mm -hmm. Since you asked about recurring themes, we definitely see a lot of mirror reflections throughout the movie. Yes. And that, that pays off really well with the with the killing, or at least the injuring of uh, Rumi at the end. Yeah, I know. I thought that was an excellent use of that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if there was any setups or not, but mostly yeah, I've kind of you, you, you've really like discussed everything other than like the ending part, which we're gonna obviously talk about. But oh yeah, sure, definitely talk about that. That's the uh, that's the big thing. That's that's the way we'll finish this. But uh, let's try to. Um, <laughs> Any any favorite characters, by the way? Um, I, I I mean I think Mima is just a very interesting character across the board. 
And I think they handle her kind of, um, I mean, I don't want to say corruption because I think in, in general, you know, someone taking this kind of career path is not being corrupted. No. You know, taking more darker roles. But for in her own mind, this kind of collapsing of, of who she was, I think they handle that all really delicately and, and cool. Yes. Yeah, in the way that the people around her kind of manipulate her and move her in, in directions she doesn't want to go. Even if very much being an object, which is sad. Yeah, and it's funny because they they do seem to care about her, or at least treat her with respect, but they still are not... I mean, the fact that she's obviously losing track of time and not herself, mentally speaking, and they just kind of skip past it and ignore it. It's, it's very strange. <laughs> yeah, it is quite complex what they do to her. Um, I, I I get it, like, it, and, and whether this mirrors some actual, like, real-life people, that's... Like these stories of what, like you know. Oh yeah, I'm sure. I, I you could say the big D probably comes into this with many child stars and a certain like yeah. you know, mm -hmm. singer who had a TV show at one point and look where she is now. You could probably, if you know what I'm talking about, it's like yeah, you could probably say that's probably not just happened once, but many, many a times. Oh, I don't think I do, but <laughs> I don't know if you want to say. And that's the other thing I actually want to talk about, but which is that's what it was, how we can compare this or at least bring this into modern 2022 perspective of what does this mean with online social medias now um yeah and what way do you mean well how can this movie be a metaphor and or like comparable to how this is an idol singer going to an actor how can this relate to potentially like you know everybody nowadays having the potential to be a star with the internet if that makes any sense. Oh, yeah, I don't know. I didn't really think about that aspect. Like, this... Like, nobody knew what the heck was, like, nowadays was going to be, okay? Everybody has... Every decade has its vision of the future. This one really, like, hits home nowadays because of what she's going through. Um, these, these pressures uh, being manipulated by other people, potentially... Um, not for ill intentions, but, you know, just intentions that she may not agree with. And the fact that she, there's a stalker as well. I mean, like there's been suckers mm -hmm. for many of years. It's not, this is not like the only film to show that. Um, but with when being a celebrity, when being, uh, famed, you'll always have fans. You also have the dark side of being uh, of fans. Um, that's a, another thing of like, you know, like showing us like you know albeit this wasn't so much we don't we don't see we see a stalker in a perverted sense of like a, a sexual sense not so much we don't get any like you know star wars hate mail or hate fans where you know they're they're bullying her that's a whole other movie in of itself uh, mm -hmm. if it were happening this is more again a film about identity but like online nowadays people are tied to their like I, the online world itself is is their identity is their persona and it's so hard for people nowadays it, oh man it's so hard but it's it's it, it's certainly a thing people have to consciously put effort into of separating their online self with their real self and some people do that and other people don't yeah just got like lost in it and lost in the way they actually feel like we see uh 
Like in this one, we get a lot of scenes of just people like reading newspapers and talking about her, like, oh, we're talking about the band. Yep. Like, oh, it's much better without her. Like, yeah, if this was made now, we'd probably see her like reading online comments talking about just it. Just replace it's it's nothing, nothing's changed. Just like how people view it. It's the mediums that always change. The it, it remains ever like like news will always remain ever present in our society. Doesn't matter what medium it goes through it was newspapers in 1998 it's smartphones tablets and sometimes newspapers uh and, and you know computers and laptops nowadays in 2022 so it's always the same but the difference now is that more people at home can become stars whereas she has to go through an agency there's no middle not that there's no middlemen but there's less middle people nowadays uh, there's less middlemen uh, for these stars nowadays, whereas now the now basically everybody has to be their own agent uh, and do all the work themselves. So it's very hard. It's very it's why it certainly takes a person. But you could certainly put this film in front of I think any star internet star nowadays and go, how can you relate to this? And they might say I can relate to it plenty. Some may, some may not. Yeah, and you saying that made me uh made me remember a question that I was going to write down but i forgot to uh, but do you think that this could be adapted into live action well <sighs> we're going there <laughs> so darren aronofsky requiem for a dream in the bathtub scene uh he why toshi Kone points this out is that jennifer Connolly actually apparently there's a scene in that where she does something similar and Aronofsky has said that he wanted to make a live adaptation, live action adaptation of Perfect Blue. Oh wow! Hmm. For America, of course. Excuse me. Yeah, it suits his sensibilities. If anyone was going to do it, <laughs> suits his. I mean, he also Black Swan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I guess yeah, dealing with similar themes. Yeah, that's amazing. He's <laughs> Darren Aronofsky and Otaku. <laughs> Just an Artura film. That's that's what it is. <laughs> yeah, one of my favorites of the filmmakers still working today. Just great that guy. But Um Yeah, so we could have had a potential I don't know if he would make a live action adaptation of it now. I'd be very impressed if he did so one day, but as for now, like this is like apparently like maybe not Re Rec Room for a Dream has some similar thing. I don't did you have you watched that film? Uh, yes, and yeah, I know what uh, I know the scenes he was referring to. Yeah. Okay, uh, Jennifer Connelly is she like apparently a, a similar character where she's like either a singer or somebody transitioning to being an actor. Um, yeah, trying, but definitely, or at least trying to better herself in that way, but definitely not the same level of uh, success as this. Of course, and definitely more uh, compromising position that she puts herself in i see okay um it's almost like requiem for requiem for a dream excuse me and black swan are kind of perfect blue but like two different um two, two different like split into two different films because black swan as i recall has the alternate persona correct um yeah well i need to rewatch that one that's one that perplexes <laughs> me quite a bit so maybe that's that's fair maybe that's an element that i missed <laughs> Yeah, but he says homages, by the way, not so much like adapts, but like, again, yeah. take, takes ideas. So he was very like, Satoshi Kone was very like humbled and, and very like, 
not impressed, but he was like, you know, oh my goodness, this is amazing. Um, that like his his work basically was adapted by somebody, which is always interesting to see when people like adapt. Obviously, George Lucas can attest to that, but like, <laughs> at least in this case, you know, for for Satoshi Kon, that's pretty awesome. That like, especially mm-hmm. animation to live action, that's that's something else, man. When like an animated film is is like partially adapted, or at least scenes of it are are referenced by a live action film especially in like the west in america that's something else man that's clearly like you know appreciation right there for the original work yeah and i think this was a pretty big film when it came out it got it definitely got a lot of attention at the time oh yeah i mean when he when he watched it in theaters like when Cone watched it in like the theaters for the first time he would had to look down during the violation scene he was like blown up in that he's like oh what have i done <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure it's a lot different seeing it in that setting, seeing all these people around watching the art that you created that was so kind of, yeah. Golly, watching this one day when we go to the Rio, I, man, alive, I don't know. That'll be that'll be something else. Oh, it's played a bunch. Yeah. Yeah, I keep wanting to go see it. We're going to go see uh, Hey, if it's a recurring film, we'll probably see it eventually. Yeah, hopefully one day. But, <laughs> but oh, I just saw the scene where she... Um, was being attacked by that stalker and then hit him over the head with the hammer and he, he kind of dies. And then when she stands up, all the crew people are clapping and yep. all the cameras are there again. Uh, that's Yeah, that's where it's like, was was he really the stalker the whole time? Was this whole thing a television show? Was it was it all, uh, uh, what's it called? A Truman Show or, or not? Yeah, again, or just she's uh, she's taking the method the wrong way where she's really becoming the character for her uh i mean to be fair <laughs> though if that if if i'm taking because again i'm looking at this very literally i shouldn't be doing that but i actually do like my literal standpoint because at least gives me perspective on something but i would say that she's in every well i don't think she again self-defense she intentionally did not try to kill him she intentionally tried to survive <laughs> mm-hmm. oh i just got to uh because i was like oh the fish there they are but i realized that it is in uh that other apartment here Rumi's room, eh? Yeah. So, yeah, there you go. Oh, and the uh, fish, the two fish in her apartment scene, by the way, because Toshikon did talk about that for a bit after, because it was after the violation scene. Uh, he did say that that was, he kind of represents, those, those are two representations of, like, uh, actor Mima and then, like, idol singer Mima. He's like, okay, that's the, the, the there, there's some, like, symbolism right there. Oh, okay. Hmm. Oh, but did you wanna did you wanna talk about this this final scene here? I would assume so. I think we've pretty much. I don't, I don't know of much if I wanna talk anything any, any more about stuff. Other than that, there's a lot of running in this scene, by the way, or not the scene. There's a lot of running in this film. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Tom Cruise, uh, he did the uh, the training with the actors for it. You know, <laughs> he trained all the animated <laughs> actors for this. <laughs> uh, stupid joke. <laughs> This film also has, I don't know if they still exist in Japan, but they also, once again, this film has, um, goes through a tunnel scene and, you know, metaphors about tunnels of like, you know, caves, modern day caves where you can see, uh, a character is forced to, is forced to like see themselves. Um, mm. so that's, you can say that, but the, the, the tunnel scenes have those, that orange neon glow to them. Uh, which was in Wicked City, which was in Akira. It was also in Ghost in the Shell. Something about that. A lot of directors were using that, in the, uh, at least in their films. Uh, 
in this time. I guess it was... I don't know if they're still used in the... Uh, what do you call it? In the... Nowadays, but... Or if, if those tunnels still exist or not, but... It'd be cool when we go to Japan one day. Oh, that would be cool. Oh, but, um... Oh, boy, my brain. Oh, yeah, the, uh, the, the repeating scene, right? Where she gets hit by the truck that has Stalker in it. And then the scene repeats over and over again. Forgot about that bit. Yeah, and then the truck almost kills her and uh, Rumi at the end. But, um... Okay, I got another stupid thing to throw out. Because, as I often do with these surrealist films, I throw anything at the wall. Let's hear it. Let's hear it. Again, this is more abstract, but potentially could be more surreal. Read. Because my other theory was going to be... Um, Perhaps, I mean, in, in the universe, this film, it seems pretty clear that Rumi does exist and that she's there all this time. But you could almost see Rumi, and, and the reason that I just thought of this is because you mentioned the tunnel scene. And during that tunnel scene, um, we see Mima looking in the, the reflection of the, the car, but looking back is Rumi as Rumi's talking to her. And I wondered, is Rumi, could Rumi be a representation of her as an older, act, as an older person whose career failed? And she was this pop star, and her band kind of fell apart, and she grew up kind of this bitter person, wishing she can go back to who she was. And then we see that at the end, she's like possessed by Mima. And she's like, oh, I'm the real Mima, and I want to kill you so I can take my role back and be who I should be. So, so again, I don't know, I don't, I don't know if that reading really holds water. I, I, I just thought of it just now, so I didn't really think it through too well, but... But there you go. There's another well, potential. Uh... That was I probably didn't say that, but that was my intention of the. Uh, that that was my reading of it because you saying that she was. Well, when you first told me that, that was my reading of it because like if she's a failed pop singer, then she's projecting herself, using Mima as a projection and living vicariously through her. Therefore, she uh, develops this persona. Which is you know uh, pop singer uh, uh, Mima. Yeah, in my way, uh, the way I meant it just then, Rumi wouldn't actually be a real character anymore. She would just be a more of a symbolic character. Maybe another projection of uh, Mima's delusions, but... I see. Oh, I see. Okay, okay. Yeah, like a... Yeah, this older version of her. Foreshadowing, almost. Yeah, and she's crying during the scene where she does the assault scene, the, the kind of the end of what her career was, and the end of who she was before, oh. you know? But, but again, these are all just kind of just throwing it out there. This film leaves many, many doors open for interpretation. So. Oh, golly. Oh, golly. Yeah. That's the scene where, like, it repeats again. And uh, she, like, is in the scene with Rumi. Oh, golly. Yeah. That's the scene of her, like, oh, that's creepy. Her re watching or looking at the computer and then, like, just looking completely, you know, out of it. I'm like, that's that's creepy um but i've been there before uh but like when she the scene repeats where she's at Rumi's house or at her house i don't know which one it is um and she's drinking tea and then she breaks the glass the second time uh where she like the blood is real isn't it mm -hmm. I, i'll say this as a person who who isn't all all there and i'd say i'm i've improved mentally speaking um one thing i would do sometimes if I didn't think reality was, I, I existed in this reality, uh, is I'd always like find a piece of like wood, and don't don't worry, not not doing anything wrong, but like I I would or just any like solid object, a wall, and I would like run my fingers down the wall 
just to get that sensation in my fingertips and say, yeah, no, you still exist. <laughs> hmm. Like a bringing back to reality point, point, if that makes sense. Yeah. I should mention that if I had watched this around the same time I watched Ghost in the Shell, I probably would have had a mental breakdown. <laughs> oh, wow. Interesting. Of like, of how... Yeah, I remember saying that to myself like when I first watched this. I was like, oh, yeah, if this if I had watched this film around the same time as Ghost in the Shell, because I had like a existential crisis when I watched that film, I would have had a literal like mental breakdown and killed myself probably from watching this oh, film. Oh, no. My, my, mental st- uh, my, my mental health was so far gone by that point. I was like, I, like again, Ghost in the Shell hit me hard. Nowadays, I'm fine. It's, it's, it's still a wonderful movie. I love it. But it's just like <laughs> that first time it like really hit me, especially that one's also about identity and it different line of course but this would have literally drove me over the wall like drove me up the wall and done something i would have wouldn't be able to walk back from but yeah i certainly can see her i'm not saying i've invented personas but i certainly my identity crisis is not so much like um my past self yelling at me and saying oh you're like a complete sleazebag and the R word for, uh, for, for not following your dreams or for not, you know, going down these paths. Um, it's just more like, what am I doing here on this earth? Rather than like, um, I'm having a crisis, an identity crisis. I guess you could say, you could, you could extend it to being that, but that's my like personal thoughts on the film or like my personal projections I put on the film. Do you have any of that where like you saw yourself in this film? Um, no, I wouldn't say I did. No, but, but that's, that's, that's great to, when you can relate to a film more on that level, get, get more kind of, um, fully like emotionally caught up in it. Like I was definitely feeling emotionally caught up in just caring about Mima and, and trying to decipher like how much of this was actually happening to her, how much this was like her own mental states, but, but having that more personal kind of relation to the character definitely makes a big difference. I think. Yeah. By the way, I'm at the scene with uh, the scene where the cameraman gets stabbed, where it's you know your Jello scene. But God, that's a lot of blood. Yeah. The 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 person, the uh, pizza delivery person, is just like their eyes aren't even there. Um. So yeah. Well, yeah. Then it's yeah. It's revealed there. There's Mima right there. So. Yeah. Oh, and I love the intercutting when she's doing the the stabbing. That's just so well done. Oh, yeah. Yeah, very much so. Again, some of that kind of sub- subliminal like imagery also feels very much a, a relation to Jalos with that kind of stuff. But, but oh, I just saw a lot of blood, too, because I just saw the scene where Rumi kind of... Uh, it's strange. I, I don't understand what exactly happened with her there. Because she, they accidentally smashed the mirror. And it's almost like she's reaching back for the image. Like, she's like, oh no, like, I saw myself as Rumi, but I'm Mima, and she's, like, reaching to, to collect the pieces of the glass so she could see herself again. Yeah. And just stabs herself. So, so that was interesting. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, the ending. Uh, what was... What was the uh, person? What did should Cohen say about this one? I actually don't remember this one too well. Um, <laughs> sure. Other than like, the ending happens real to be me or to be Rumi, and then first off, I thought she died. Like I thought she was killed by either the car crash or the 
um, the stabbing. I swear I was like, not stabbing, but like when she got the piece of glass stuck in here, I thought she was going to bleed out. But no, that's not the case. Um, what ended up happening yeah, was she survived and is now in a mental institution. And so I was surprised by that. And that she still had seen this pr the uh, persona. She's still seeing the Rumi persona. And, or not the Rumi, the, uh, the pop singer persona. Because in the mirror, I was very impressed by that. I was like, hmm, wonder if that means something. Oh, I remember now what Cohen was saying. Um, in, what is it? In that scene, he was saying, like, when Rumi, or when Mima shows up, we see her talking to one of the orderlies and the doctors. Um, there and she's talking with her she has sunglasses on um and she's looking through a glass mirror which as comb put it is a is a filter you can also mm. say i guess her sunglasses are a filter so um <laughs> that means she's looking through two filters but uh whatever and he says like either she's seeing what she wants to see or she's not i was like okay that's interesting and then one online person pointed this out i didn't like i was on tv tropes and somebody like made mention in like either trivia or something else i don't look at wild mass guessing stuff but someone mentioned that she does have a car at the end and throughout the whole film she's either taking public transit or being carpooled oh that's interesting so that's you know that's that's that, that's one thing of like she now has a sense of like independence uh from from the system potentially is where she can like go uh, wherever she pleases potentially that i don't know i'm like so that, that wasn't my idea if that wasn't my read on the film don't worry um but then Cone states that um, the 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 MC actually uh, of the of the lecture was like, oh, when she says like, no, it's me or whatever uh, at the end when she's in her car and like she takes her sunglasses off and looks in the rearview mirror, um, it's me. She interpreted that exactly as you put it, where it's like, oh, did she commit all these murders? And Cone hadn't thought about that either. He's like, yeah, I didn't really think about that. Um, but that's what adds to the complexity of this film. Yeah, and I, I wondered, because um, right before that, there's these two nurses, and they're like, is that Mima, however you say her last name? And they're like, no, there's no way she'd be here. Must have just been a lookalike. Oh, uh, Kiragoi. Oh, Kiragoi. Yeah, and so I thought her being like, no, I'm real, was in response to the, the, the nurses, but I also wondered, like, yeah, what does that mean overall? I'm real, so... <laughs> Yeah, and uh, what else is there? Um, oh yeah, the other thing is that he met, what he mentioned was that she's um, she's more like assured of herself. She's 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 grown more. We don't know how much time is how much intermediate time has happened after this. Whether this was like a few months later or like a year later, uh, but he also made mention that this is still her personality is still under construction. Like, this isn't, like, the mm. end for her. And he made mention of that, how, like, we're not always... We're, it's almost like we're not always, like, built. We're all, we're always not... Com we're not a complete person. We're always, like, learning new things. Mm -hmm. uh, we're always... We're, our identities kind of change ever so... Because, like, if you hear another opinion about something, your your identity changes. You're not always absolute. You're not, like, this uh, uh, one-note person, almost. You're just always ever-shifting, so given like the information we have every day like yeah your 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 identity would technically change and not be the same yeah and you, you saying that kind of leads to my my final thoughts in the movie because i was gonna say i feel like this is a movie where i feel like every time i watch it my reading could change like it feels like a story 
there's so many moving parts, so many elements that it could be just like an ever-evolving opinion on what what exactly it's supposed to mean or what exactly is happening in it. But I think that's super cool. Like sometimes these kind of abstract films, uh, they can be a complete enigma, and there's no like there's no need to really have a resolution because just the fun of trying to figure it out is enough. And it looks just so visually, just has such a very distinct quality to it. It's got such a yeah. great vibe and structure. Like it really, and the music, and especially those kind of, the music in those kind of murder scenes, so the two of them, and then the, or at least the, the one, and then the end scene with Rumi. I love the music there too. So all that stuff just kind of really just captivates me and makes me want to go back to it again and again. So, so there you go. There's my final thoughts, but <laughs> yeah. No, uh, my not final final thoughts because you know I don't fully know what's gonna again because my my viewpoint changes. But at least for this commentary, as of this point, my final thoughts. Yeah. Please go watch this film. Uh, please support this film because it's a wonderful film. Um, you'll all come away with different opinions. Maybe someone uh, us. I don't know. I my final thought is that yes, it is. I take it literally as as it was of a woman trying to get into a new industry, transition from one part of the industry to another, um, and through stresses and or um, the stress of people not believing she can do it to uh, the fact that they're stalker who knows her every move basically on this website or there's this website and there's just seems to be this person following her there's paranoia that's all around her it's yeah and, and whether like her past self is actually like you know manifesting itself into person again such a unique film well every film is unique <laughs> but i certainly enjoy it and i think uh the cone has done something that i've not seen done before and uh, certainly looking at the dark side again of like the film industry or just, you know, the art industry itself and what can happen here. So yeah, I'm, I'm very appreciative of this film. I'm glad it exists and that she, in the end, she didn't do it all. Like she's not a murderer and that mostly it was kind of other people who had mental uh, in, uh, mental conditions that um, also were kind of aligned with her and how she was she influenced them in a way unintentionally of course because you know she's allowed to live her life but two these other two people are what they, what they did is completely just unacceptable and very ill-intentional and really well you know, wrong of them to do so sorry what you're going on yeah, I'm curious for if you take it all literally, do you think that she killed the photographer or or no? That's a good question because she wakes up uh, when it happens and it's clearly her. I was thinking it was either Rumi or it was maybe it literally was her. I actually don't know. I don't have a full on reading because it's in. She finds the evidence in her closet, <laughs> literally, and. After that, we then see her go to the soundstage again to do a scene where she's murdering maybe the guy. I think it was the guy who violated her. The, the characters, I mean, in the TV show. Yeah. Um, I think she's murdering him, and with the same like you know instrument. You can also hear everybody saying, 
uh, that she's jinxed, that she's because you know when she first comes on, all these murders keep happening. That was the original premise, I think, in one of the uh, synopsises, where they talk about how like as soon as she starts getting these roles uh, or this one role in this television show, people start actually dying. So I was like, that's not exactly the movie though. That's it's kind of a very <laughs> like basic description of the film. But yeah, I guess to answer your question, I, I, I'm unsure right now of whether that is her or not. I guess if it is her, then I could see why she would murder him. Like there's, <laughs> there's plenty of reason for her murdering him, but, um, yeah, I guess, yeah, I'll, I'll go with that for now. Like, yeah, she did murder him. So she is a murderer, but um, everything else that happens to her, is, 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 are her hands washed clean? Of course not, but you can see why she did She did it. Oh, but just uh, before we move on to the final part of this, this podcast here, I wanted to mention that it's kind of cool that he did this film and uh, Millennium Actress back-to-back, Stoshi Kone. Because this is kind of highlighting the dark side of the film in- industry with this one female character. The Millennium Actress is looking back at this this actress's career and seeing the, kind of the light side of it. And seeing kind of a, a person's history through film. So, so it's, it's a cool kind of pairing in these two. And again, they have a very similar look to them. So it's a great double bill. I would recommend it. So <laughs> Yeah, and then like Tokyo Godfathers is like a more positive film. Uh, Paprika, I have no idea about, and then Paranoia Agent yeah, is kind either. of the opposite. <laughs> yeah, I really gotta track that down too. Those are the two that I haven't seen yet. It's readily available. I think all three of his three. I think all of his like uh, projects he's done is readily available. I would say. Oh, which is fantastic, by the way. As someone who's wanted to see this film for many, many years, it was extremely difficult to get for the longest time. Same with Tokyo Godfathers. Out of print. And then all of a sudden, Shout Factory comes to the rescue, and, and here we go. So, big thanks to them. Yeah, and Tokyo Godfathers previously did not have a English dub for that film. Oh, I didn't realize. So, for those who like, yeah, for those who like uh, English dubs, it's on there. I should ask, like, what what version did you watch this of? Uh, yeah, I've only seen the Japanese one. I haven't, I haven't okay. watched the dub. Yeah, all I know is that Rumi is voiced by Faye Valentine's actor Wendy Lee. Um, so that's kind of funny. Uh, if, if you're a Bebop fan. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, but um, to get to the final part of this, this podcast might have to be a little more truncated than I was planning initially because this one went so long. But but for the retrospective overall, the Strange Animation Volume oh. 1. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this is interesting. Yeah, I forgot about that. So, yeah, we've given our thoughts on this. Now it's time for that. Um, yeah, Volume 1. Good entries. I think... This is not as um, yeah. They're they're all straightforward stories except for Angel's Egg. I thought you were gonna do a little more. Yeah. That one's more surreal. I thought you were gonna do a lot more like surreal stuff. Whereas like the f- like the three of these entries are more abstract. Unless I'm reading it wrong. Well, again, I mean, yeah, I think depending on who you talk to, Perfect Blue could be considered surreal. Because again, maybe almost everything that we're seeing could be just not how it actually is. It's difficult to uh, have one solidified reading. But, yeah, that is true. Yeah, and, and definitely something like a strange animation doesn't necessarily just mean surreal. It, it's just more about uh, more experimental and weird sides of animation. Like I think all these, in their way, kind of suit that in some some different way. Yeah, that's true. Like just um, like maybe the most straightforward would be a scanner darkly, but just the element of the rotoscoping 
and the kind of drugged out story. I thought that was unique and, and strange enough to be uh, to fit in the series. And um, Fantastic Planet is just fucking weird in general. That is some weird stuff. <laughs> so yeah, endings rushed. Well, again, may, maybe maybe on further watchings there'd be some meaning there that we didn't didn't get. It's it's hard to say with these kind of films. But just uh, reflecting at the over them all in general, did you have been, what was your uh, favorite? Do you think out of the group? I would say Angel's Egg. Hmm. Yeah. If, okay. So if we're going order, none of these were bad films. By the way, none of these were bad films. But if I had to gun to my head. Angel's Egg for okay, so Angel's Egg one. Oof. Uh, I'd say Perfect Blue second, Fantastic Planet third, Scanner Darkly fourth. Hmm. And that's not because I can readily I can find you know all of them avail like availability. Not a fact that I have Perfect Blue like phys on physical uh, copy of it. Yeah, I think if I was doing them, I would go Perfect Blue. Then maybe Fantastic Planet, then Angel's Egg, then A Scanner Darkly. Okay. Yeah, I just think the world of Fantastic... I mean, I love the world in Angel's Egg. I think that's great. But something about the way that Fantastic Planet looks and the world there, the great sci-fi world, that just captures my imagination. I just love living there. Oh, yeah. Perfect Blue. I mean, I, every time I watch this, I get soul pulled into it. It's such a cool movie, and I, I'm a huge Jalo fan. So seeing that kind of... Um, translated into anime it just really tickles me pink so I, I just love this one yeah I'm kind of going off of horror actually and I'm taking a horror angle on this of like least like from from like and, and obviously I thought uh, Planetastic Planet would terrify me parts of it do but like and not that I would rank this one higher but I'm just like this is cheating, but remembering, you know, my experiences with Ghost in the Shell the first time, this would have terrified me as, like, a young adult, or younger adult, excuse me. Um, like, Angel's Egg straight up scared me. Like, Angel's Egg's, like, as I said before, Angel's Egg just completely, like, scared the crap out of me. Uh, and I like being scared in that in that sense. It just was, it was so nice to have that, like, uh, hairs in the back of your head go up and, like, a chill down your spine of, like, what's gonna happen? And there was, like, other than the scream, there's almost like nothing that was that came out. But that was that's just what I like, man. I love it when I'm like scared. And this this film also is pretty scary. Um, if you look at it from that perspective, Scanner Darkly is pretty tame. I don't think there's any really yeah. shocking moments, uh, other than maybe how like the rotos the rotoscoping the um or is it rotoscoping? I don't remember now. Uh, that can be a little unsettling, but I think I think it worked pretty well. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, no, this, but yeah, based off of, like so, yeah. Angel's Egg, I'd say, also looking at it, is the strangest of the bunch. <laughs> because at the end of the day, even though Fantastic Planet has its great effects, as you stated, and are great visuals, um, that had a straight, more straightforward story than, say, Angel's Egg did. So, like, in terms yeah. of, like, strange, I would say Angel's Egg takes the cake just because of how, like... You don't even you, you'll still watch that again and you'll be like oh this makes different sense um whereas like all these like yeah i mean standard darkly should also probably go higher but like hey it's all about your your personal preference it's all yeah it's it's all what you think of man yeah and they're all i mean comparing the strangest i think they all have very strange elements that if anyone just like a casual viewer 
just tuned into them. They'd be like, what the fuck? Like, why is this like this? So, <laughs> like, even Perfect Blue, it starts out seemingly pretty straightforward and normal. But as it goes, it just keeps getting more more weird and more dis yeah. disjointed. And, yeah, like, by the end of it, me and you have completely different readings. And my readings, I don't even have one solidified one. I feel like I could have, like, three or four different readings on it. Yeah, that's true. But, but yeah, I've, I've super enjoyed going through all these and revisiting... I'm hoping my next one I'll pick because Fantastic Plan was the only one that I'd seen once. Or uh, I guess I had seen that one a second time when we reviewed it, but but all these other ones I'd had more time to sit with them. Yeah. So maybe the next volume I'll pick some stuff that I haven't seen before or only seen once, that kind of thing. Yeah, and if anybody has any suggestions, please email us at noviceleadus at gmail.com because Absolutely. <laughs> we're not will we're not we're not like, you know, we're not desperate, as I always say. Maybe we are. I don't. I, I hope we're not putting that out there, but we got plenty of things to review. But if you have any strange animations that you've seen, and hey, you'd like to come on and talk about, please, we're we're always open. Yep, absolutely. I'm I'm always happy to check out more of this stuff. I've made enormous lists up to this point of films to check out, so maybe it'll already be on the list. But if someone recommends it, maybe I'll bump it up to to get included a little higher. So, yeah, volume two will happen. We don't know. Uh, how I don't know how many entries it will be. That's that's all on him. Mm. Yeah, and my plan right now is to do it after the summer. So, but maybe we'll see how it goes. Maybe we'll knock on what if that actually happens. But I'm more likely saying like, like look for this strange animation volume two in the future. In the future, there you go. And thanks again, Isaac, for coming along with me. And thanks to our two guests who came on for these. That was a lot. Of fun. Yeah, I forgot about that. Two separate guests. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for both of them. Maybe we'll have more later on. But yeah, you're welcome, man. Thank you for showing me these films. Uh, I very much enjoyed them all. I will go back to each of them at some point uh, down the line. Um, but for now, we're closing the entry of Volume 1 of Strange Animations. Till next time, everybody. Peace. Peace.